Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to this postscript edition of New Books and Political Science on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell, and welcome to the show. We've devoted an earlier postscript with Joseph Bloker and Jacob Charles to the basics of a new Second Amendment case regarding concealed carry laws and what we might expect from the Supreme Court oral arguments. Now that those arguments have happened, we have Joseph Jacob and another terrific Second Amendment scholar, Eric Rubin, to analyze that oral argument. Even if you're not a SCOTUS junkie, this conversation is important because 80 million or 25% of Americans may have their democratically crafted gun laws overturned by the decision of the nine justices. In New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, two men, Robert Nash and Brendan Koch, applied for an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm in public. Uh, the men live in Rensselaer County, which I used to live in, in, and it includes the mid-sized city of Troy, which is about 50,000 people, home to Russell Sage College, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and also rural areas. Although both men were uh, denied unrestricted concealed carry licenses, they were both issued concealed carry for hunting and target, and one was granted concealed carry related to work travel. The case focuses on New York State's 1910 proper cause requirement for an unrestricted concealed carry license and whether it violates the Second Amendment. Nash, Brandon, and the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association argue that the clause violates the Second Amendment based on the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. This side argues that the Second Amendment protects the right to carry arms outside the home for self-defense, and that New York State's proper cause allows local officials too much discretion granting permits, discretion that they claim used to be used against disfavored groups like Black Americans in the South and immigrants in the North. The state of New York responds that the text, history, and tradition establish that New York State's law is consistent with the Second Amendment because the text does not create an unqualified right to concealed carry in any public place, and that states have restricted carry in public places and have had it uh, since the beginning of the United States and also uh, in England under the common law. So New York points to the fact that the law is over a century old and consistent with the decisions in Heller versus versus District of Columbia, and McDonald versus City of Chicago. In addition to the text, history, and tradition approach, the state argues that the New York State uh, laws uh, requirement satisfies what it thinks is the preferred approach, intermediate uh, scrutiny, and Joseph and Eric are experts here. They've submitted an amicus brief to the court, and we'll explain more about what intermediate scrutiny means during our discussion. Okay, Jacob Charles is the executive director and lecturing fellow at the Center for Firearms at Duke University Law School. His work on the Second Amendment has appeared in numerous law journals, most recently securing gun rights by statute, the right to keep and bear arms outside the Constitution, is forthcoming from University of Michigan Law Review. There, he's looking at how non-constitutional gun rights create broad powers for gun owners beyond the Second Amendment. Uh, His extensive public-facing scholarship includes a new piece in the Washington Post monkey cage, Supreme Court justices sounded suspicious of New York State's gun law. Here's what might come next. Jake, let me start with your analysis in the monkey cage. Like many observers, you noted that a majority of the court seemed critical of New York State's law. 
but you highlighted two geographic concerns that the justices have, and I'd love to begin there. Terrific. Um, And thanks so much for having us on again, Susan. It's great to be talking with you. So the case is really about Second Amendment geography, right? The important important question at the center of the case is whether the Second Amendment extends outside the home. But that's only one of the geographic questions that occupied time at oral argument. Uh, Two other questions took up a lot of the justices' time. Uh, One was this question of sensitive places, and one was this question of localism or local variation in gun regulations. So the sensitive places discussion arises from a line in the Heller decision in 2008 where the Supreme Court first announced an individual right. And it was a line where Justice Scalia said, we're not imperiling all gun regulations with this decision. Here is an example of areas where you can, where states can regulate, and it said in sensitive places like schools and government buildings. Uh, that was all the decision said in Heller, and there has been a lot of debate since then about what exactly that meant, what makes a place sensitive. And we saw a lot of that during the arguments um, in Bruin, where the justices were grappling with what kinds of places could New York still enact gun regulations, gun restrictions in if they expanded this right outside the home, if they struck down this proper cause regime. So there were questions about um, university campuses, about football stadiums and baseball parks, about New York City subways. And um, all of them were getting at this question of what types of places is it permissible to restrict guns to? And we can talk maybe a little bit about the rationales that have come up in in this case and in the scholarship about that and in some other lower court decisions. But that was one of the questions. The other was, um, would it be okay for, um, for New York City to regulate guns differently than upstate New York does? Right? They have different gun cultures. They have different geographies that make them more suitable to different purposes. Uh, uh, Justice Thomas said, well, presumably you can't hunt in Central Park, right? But you can hunt up here in Rensselaer County. Um, and uh, the state said, of course, yeah, that's what we have. We have these different systems for hunting. It makes sense for us to have the different systems for getting an unrestricted care. Uh, carry permit for self-defense purposes as well. Um, that uh, Justice Thomas's questions and his suggestion that that might be okay was, I think, a surprising development because uh, the other conservative justices, especially um, Chief Justice Roberts, for instance, uh, were not particularly receptive to this argument that you might have different kind of gun regulations um, in uh, New York City versus in upstate New York. Um, But that question of whether it's okay for a constitutional right to look differently in different places was another thing that um, occupied the justices during argument. That's great. Uh, Another thing that you mentioned in your Washington Post piece had to do with empirical evidence. And I just wanted to um, ask if you just want to say something quick about the use of empirical evidence during the oral arguments. Sure, I'll, I'll try. Uh, I'll try to be as quick as I can. Um, so, one of the questions in this case is about what test the court is going to announce for evaluating gun challenges, um, and one of those tests might have a role for empirical evidence to play. The same test that we use in the First Amendment context, where we're asking whether or not the government can enact a regulation that might burden speech in some capacity. Uh, one of the things that courts look for is. Uh, empirical evidence or the kind of evidence that ties a particular law to whatever the government's interest in is, whether it's, uh, you know, increasing uh, public access to certain kind of information or decreasing the potential for distortion in the market of the marketplace of ideas. 
whatever that interest is, if there is empirical evidence supporting that. And lower courts have been doing this in the Second Amendment as well, saying that that kind of empirical evidence is relevant to whether or not a gun law is constitutional. Um, but some of the justices um, uh, seemed not to be receptive to having empirical evidence play a role in uh, in Second Amendment challenges, and especially with this test of text, history, and tradition that I'm sure we'll talk about um, a little more today. Um, and one of the surprising parts for me, at least, was that the state was not pushing back um, as much as it could have on empirical assertions that were being made about the law. So the challengers kept saying, you know, we want to do what these other 43 jurisdictions are doing, and they haven't seen any increased gun violence from eliminating either their permit requirement or their good cause requirement. And um, it's a contested proposition, but there is empirical evidence that suggests that some of those states do experience increased gun violence when they when they get rid of those requirements. Um, so that was a kind of one thing on the methodology and then one thing that was missing from some of the advocacy. Great. Thanks so much. And also, thank you for live tweeting the, the oral argument. It was, uh, I wasn't actually able to be listening for the first 15 minutes. And it was pretty great to have your your very neutral sort of laying out of, of what was actually happening. So so thanks for, thanks for contributing that. Uh, Eric Rubin is an assistant professor of law at Southern Methodist University's Dedman School of Law and uh, a Brennan Center uh, fellow. Uh, Working at the intersection of criminal law, law ethics, and the Second Amendment, his scholarship's been published in law reviews such as California, Duke, and Georgetown, as well as public-facing outlets like The Atlantic, New York Times, Vox, Jurists, The Conversation, and SCOTUS blog. Uh, He organized and contributed scholarship to an important Brenner Center report, Protests, Insurrection, and the Second Amendment, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, Eric Rubin, where were you listening to the oral arguments? What insights do you have into the questions the justices asked and the answers they got from the attorneys? One of the the lines of questioning that I found very interesting was when Justice Brett Kavanaugh was reiterating and emphasizing that the first inquiry is whether or not there's a right to bear arms. And then subsequent questions where, okay, well, after we've established that right to bear arms, then we look to try to delineate what the restrictions on that right might be. And this is interesting because that first um, presumption, what does it mean to bear arms, depending on how it's decided, could really decide the entire case. If you believe that, or if the, the justices conclude that bear arms mean carrying firearms or carrying handguns virtually anywhere, then that in and of itself could conclude that the New York law is unconstitutional. What New York is arguing and what the United States was arguing was that the meaning of bear arms actually has a more limited meaning. It means bear arms when necessary for self-defense. Um, and if, if that's the starting point, then New York's law looks better. So one of the interesting things that I'm going to be looking for when the opinions come out is how the justices decide the textual question that they're likely to begin their analysis with. What does it mean to bear arms? Does it mean to bear virtually anywhere a confrontation might take place? Or does the meaning of bear arms bake in some notion of necessity, in which case the New York law would be insulated from, um, from, from a finding of unconstitutionality. 
think I know the answer to this question, but Eric, do you think there is any chance that they might read the entire amendment to consider the question of what bare arms means since the oral arguments really didn't focus on what Justice Scalia dismissed as the prefatory clause, which some might say as the actually just as much part of the amendment that talks about the right to bear arms in the context of the militia? Is there any possibility we'll see any of the justices return to the entire text? I would be surprised if the justices return to the prefatory, what they, they call the prefatory clause in Heller, and say that that somehow limits the scope of the right to carry handguns in public. Um, there's still a question, even if they don't do that, however, based, and, it's, and it's a question that's rooted in history of what, how broad the right to bear arms is or should be under the Second Amendment. And in the, 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 the remarks um, and, and arguments that we heard from Brian Fletcher, who was representing the United States, he came back a number of times to a law from 1871 in Texas, of all places, that was in effect for over a century. And that law banned the carrying of handguns and other weapons. And if a person were charged with violating that ban, then they could put forward evidence that they were carrying because they actually needed to carry. And when the Texas courts heard challenges to that law, constitutional challenges, they affirmed the constitutionality of that law under Texas's constitution. And there were some slight differences between Texas's right to keep and bear arms and the Second Amendment. Um, but they affirmed it saying that the right to bear arms only in essence kicks in when there's a need to carry around a weapon. Um, and therefore this Texas provision, which banned public carry and set up an affirmative defense um, was constitutional. So there's an argument that the second amendment right to bear arms actually is just to bear arms when you have a particularized reason to carry arms. And I think that one of the things the justices are going to have to decide is how broad they think the textual um, and historical understanding of bear arms is and whether or not it includes any limitations based in need. Thanks so much, Eric. Um, Joseph Bloker is the Lanty L. Smith 67 professor of law at Duke University School of Law and one of the attorneys who helped write the brief for D.C. in D.C. versus Heller. Uh, he co-authored the Positive Second Amendment, Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller with Daryl Miller in 2018. Among his numerous law review articles is When Guns Threaten the Public Sphere, a new account of public safety regulation under Heller, in which he and Reva Siegel interrogate the impact of gun rights on free speech. Recently, he's been a guest on the podcast Strict Scrutiny, contributed to the New York Times and NPR reporting of the case. And we're recording the day before Joseph and Eric will have an op-ed in the Washington Post. We'll include a link in our in our show notes even uh, yeah, well, I don't have the title, but we'll 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 have it. Um, Joseph Loker, you've been anticipating a case like this for some time. Uh, did you hear something in the oral arguments that helps us understand what gun laws for concealed carry might look like in June when the court decides the case? Was there something here that you didn't anticipate? 
Tell us what you think. So first, thanks again for having me back on, Susan. This is always, always a pleasure to talk to you, um, even even under such circumstances. Um, I thought this was a case where the uh, oral argument was unusually illuminating. Um, I'm, not, I'm someone who thinks that Supreme Court oral arguments sometimes don't actually give much of a sense of which way the court is going or even what the hard issues are. And I find them sometimes frustrating when it feels like the justices aren't grappling with what's hard about a case. But it seemed to me that in this case, Really, from the get-go, I mean, even from the very first question, which was from Justice Thomas, who's sort of, you know, um, <laughs> I guess, uh, uh, notoriously reticent in most oral arguments, um, the, the, courts, the court uh, as a whole really did seem to be sort of grappling with what's going to be hard about this. I mean, two quick themes on that. One is just to emphasize what Jake said. This was an oral argument that was really, really, really focused on geography. And, you know, sometimes, especially in constitutional law, we have you know, discussions that seem somewhat ethereal, they may seem sort of disconnected from the way law works on the ground, but here you actually really saw the justices grappling with, well, look, if we strike down New York's, you know, restriction on public carry, where is that going to leave us with regard to, and then, I mean, for, I'll say five minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but is a lot for a Supreme Court oral argument, it may have been 10 minutes, a series of hypotheticals, um, or not even hypotheticals, a series of real world questions. Well, what about gun restrictions on you know, subways, what about college campuses? What about Times Square? And um, Paul Clement, who's a brilliant advocate representing the um, uh, representing the challenges here, I think was, was a little on his back foot about that because it really, I think, showed the potentially radical implications of the argument that they did make in their brief, which is that, you know, the, the, the right to keep and bear arms, and as Eric said, I think there'll be a real focus on that, on that verb, um, uh, bear, um, you know, they, they suggest in their brief that that has to uh, extend basically whenever and wherever a person happens to be because the right to self, the need for self-defense could arise whenever and wherever a person might happen to be. Um, but right away, effectively conceded that can't be the case because guns must be subject to prohibition in certain sensitive places. Now, which places count as sensitive and why is the sort of second thing I just, I, I guess I would flag because for me, this is where the justices were really most attuned to the difficulty of a purely historical test. Um, and here, Susan, I have to plug your work because you have this the fantastic piece, Sensitive Places and How the Myth of Originalism, um, how, how, I, I'll get the title wrong, but I think it's How Gender Unmasks the Myth of Originalism in Heller, um, or maybe in District Columbia versus Heller, something like that. Fantastic piece, which shows the difficulty of this kind of reasoning and the things that it makes us blind to. But um, here, I think the justices really were trying to figure out like, wait, if we're gonna both retain a Sensitive Places doctrine and adopt a purely historical test, how are we going to justify keeping guns out of Yankee Stadium? How are we going to justify keeping guns out of Times Square, either on New Year's Eve or just when the shows are letting out or whatever? And, you know, as expected, I think the three more liberal justices, um, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer, seemed, you know, were challenging Clement on this point. But so were Justice Thomas and Justice Barrett. Um, you know, Justice Barrett, I think, had some pretty incisive questions about Times Square, for example. And, you know, that to me was, it was really interesting. Um, and Clement's answer, at least to me, and I think maybe to the justices, was not entirely satisfactory, which is like, oh, well, you'd essentially need to do an historical analysis for each one of those places, you know, for places that serve alcohol, for stadiums, whatever. And that, I think, should put, should give the justices pause. Uh, if they're going to need 80 amicus briefs from historians to decide whether bars in New York, you know, whether New York can prohibit guns in bars, um, that's not a recipe for good constitutional law, I don't think. And alcohol was something that Justice Roberts brought up, uh, this idea of, well, places with alcohol. And then Coney Barrett raised the, the, it was hard to tell whether she meant the 
closeness of the bodies in Times Square or the inebriated quality of the people. But 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 both of those things seem to come together. Um, uh, Joseph, you mentioned uh, uh, Clement. What about what did you think about Barbara Underwood for New York State and Brian Fletcher, uh, who was representing the United States Solicitor General's so office? These these are these are hard things to sort of grade, especially when you're not in the room and you can't really kind of pick up you know the back and forth. And so so I say this with humility and understanding that their their advocacy skills far 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 outstrip mine. I thought Paul Clement was you know characteristically fantastic. I thought Brian Fletcher was brilliant um, for the United States. Uh, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. Total command of the cases. Really, really wonderful. I think General Underwood had some really, really strong moments in her oral argument um, where she made some excellent points and and was put on the defensive. I mean, she faced more aggressive questions than anyone else, um, including some really, really aggressive, bordering on nasty questions from Justice Alito, which I thought she answered really fantastically well. Um, uh, so that, that was all great. Um, there were moments, too, in that argument, and again, it's hard because she was on the back foot so much of the time, where it would have been nice, I think, to have had at the fingertips and maybe more quickly um, some responses to historical claims that Paul Clement had made that went unchallenged or empirical claims that Paul Clement had made that effectively went unchallenged about the experiences of states which have liberalized their public carry um, regimes. But, 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 but really, again, overall, this, this was a, I hate to grade it as if I'm in a position to grade the justices and the advocates here, but it was a good oral argument. The justices, I thought, asked by and large fantastic questions, um, really perceptive and probing, and I thought the advocates were all very sharp. It's a, it's a good, it's a transcript worth reading. And I should say that actually Jake and Daryl and I are working right now on annotating the tra- transcript as we did for the last big argument. We'll post it on the blog soon. That's exciting. You know, one experience I had was listening versus reading uh, Solicitor Underwood. And in listening to her, I found myself frustrated with the uh, a lack of a certain quickness in, in, in having the statistic at hand about, you know, how, uh, you know, what what concealed carry regimes look like, uh, how, uh, uh, what kinds of subway violence there is, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, reading the transcript, actually, it sounded very different. Uh, I thought the argument sounded stronger as you were reading it in terms of the logic, but there was something about the hesitations. And again, we can't see the justices' responses to it. And if I can say one quick thing on that, Susan, because it ties back to your first question to me about was there th- were there things that were surprising at oral argument? Had I been standing where Gen- General Underwood w- was standing, I would have been surprised by some of the questions and failed certainly to pick up what was being asked. And so Justice Thomas, for example, I, I actually think was very sympathetic to this notion of an urban-rural tailoring of the Second Amendment. I would not have picked that up at all. I would not have predicted it at all. And I think, like it seemed like she might have, I might have anticipated, I might have taken his question to be hostile when I think it wasn't, um, when he was asking, trying to probe the differences between urban and rural areas. Um, uh, and, you know, that would certainly would have caught, you know, any advocate flat-footed. So I, I don't mean to say anything negative about General Underwood. Again, the briefing it was fantastic, and I thought the oral argument by and large was great, too. And I'll just say something about uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, you've alluded to the fact that uh, in his tenure on the Supreme Court, he has been very quiet. He rarely asks questions in oral arguments. But since covid the SCOTUS has taken on a sort of different approach to the questioning, and we've now have timed questions in order of seniority, which puts Justice Thomas first. And so I think we can hear in this oral argument, as we have throughout this term, a difference in Justice Thomas, because he has to ask the first question, and uh, he has time. And in fact, we hear him taking that time. So I think that's 
that's it's quite it's quite a different shift, and it's interesting that they're back on the bench, but they have decided to keep what they were using on Zoom, which is a sort of interesting meta change. Um, let me open it up to anything that's been raised. I have lots of questions for you all, but uh, Eric and Jake, is there anything that that's been said over uh, that that would be helpful to comment on? Yeah, please go ahead, Jake. So I just want to comment on on the notion of a sensitive place and what makes a place sensitive. I think in the argument we saw the two competing camps um, identified about what this test should look like or what this concept should look like. And they were actually two competing concepts from uh, Paul Clement uh, for the challengers and then Justice Alito, uh, who we think I probably are going to come out on the same side on this question. And it was Justice Alito asked a question about uh, one of his questions started with, let's go back to the core concept of the Second Amendment, which is self-defense, right? This is what the court said in, in the Heller decision. And so his notion of a sensitive place was, all right, if self-defense is the core, then a sensitive place has to be a place where the government has provided enough alternative mechanisms to keep someone safe in that place such that it can say no weapons are allowed in this place. And so his understanding of a sensitive place would look would look to what the government has put in put in place. Does it have screening mechanisms when you enter? Does it uh, you know, does it make sure that everyone going in is has a right has a reason to be in that in that particular location? Uh, Paul Clement, I think, surprisingly, uh, from my perspective, pushed back on that notion because that has been uh, more of the gun rights position on what a sensitive place uh, should be. And Paul Clement uh, said, actually, I I would go for a sensitive place description that looks more at what the type of place is itself. What is it about the place that makes it sensitive? The types of things that happen there. Uh, So he didn't give these examples, but, you know, government buildings, uh, courthouses, the things that are happening inside there, we could say polling places as well, the things that are happening inside a polling place, those types of activities are what make the place sensitive. The people and the activities there, which is what the D.C. Circuit said in a sensitive places case, as opposed to what kind of protection has been provided for the participants or the people who are going into those places. And that, I think, uh, if, it, if it's not fleshed out in this particular decision, which it doesn't have to be to resolve this case, um, is going to be a question that's going to continue to confront this court and lower courts as they see more of these challenges to sensitive places crop up. You know, there was a moment that kind of disturbed me. No, thank you. It's, 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 it's so helpful. Uh, in which Robert said, asked about like, well, how many muggings take place in the forest? This is with, with Solicitor Underwood. And there was laughter. And I have to say that laughter really bothered me. Um, you know, she responded about rape and robberies on bike paths. Uh, there was a lot of what I would describe as the justices uh, <laughs> kind of exposing some of their own prejudices about violence and what concerns them, sort of a Robert's discussion of the Son of Sam, which is kind of a blast from the past. I'm a New Yorker. I remember Son of Sam, but not Bernie Getz. So this kind of, you know, what what worries you? An armed white man who shoots black teenagers on the subway or a sort of a shadowy figure who roams the streets uh, looking for sort of random people that uh, are uh, are are under attack, and or, or the ways in which they talked about New York City and the fighting about whether NYU had a campus, and the, again, the sort of laughter at New York as if somehow it's 
it's different. And that in that difference, it's not respected, for example, as the first capital of New York City. It's more like it's somehow sort of strange and an, and an outlier. I thought that was so uh, interesting and and revealing, really, about about the justices. It also, last thing I'll say is, it really sounds like the justices don't get out much because Rensselaer looks like Brooklyn if you're downtown. It's it's mushed together. It has farmers markets and people walking around the streets. It's not uh, Troy is not a little rural town. Um, and I, it's unclear whether any of the justices have been on the subways either or taken public transportation in New York City in since 1972. So it, I, I really do think it, there was a kind of an elitism on the one hand, but also a kind of a, a, a positionality to what the justices themselves were, were, were worried about. Uh, anyway, um, if I, I was just, just say two quick things on that, Susan. One on on work you've done, and some some uh, to sort of plug Eric, work that Eric's doing currently. I mean, the way I read and experienced and heard all of that was as sort of a complete misunderstanding of the reality of self defense as an action, and also of the law of self defense and how it works. And you've pointed out the former, including in that sensitive places piece, that you know the the sort of threats that the justices were sort of conjuring up, the dark hallways, the subways, et cetera. For many people, that's not the reality. For many people, the threats are in the home, it's intimate partners, like, and those scenes just don't appear in Heller, as you pointed out in your early article, or frankly, in this case, there's sort of these really. I mean, Justice Alito went on at some length describing what he envisioned New York and the subway to sort of be like, um, which was really, uh, I, I think, pretty extraordinary. And I should say, he's framing it as an anti-elitist argument, right? Like, why is it that, you know, the average New Yorker can't get guns when only gu- judges and celebrities, I think, were his two examples, can? Now, that to me is a really strong reasoning for sending this case back down because it's an empirical assumption about how the law works. And I think General Underwood was very effective in saying, look, that's not an issue here. We didn't have a trial about how many of these permits get given out or who gets them. And if you want to decide the case on that basis, then you really, really, really need to send it back down. But the second thing, and this, I'll say this and I'll turn it over to Eric, um, uh, but Eric's been writing on this, including in his um, fantastic piece in Unstable Poor. But the, the real disjunction between the way people understand the Second Amendment to work as a matter of law and self-defense law as a matter of law, right? Like Heller kind of predicates the right to keep and bear arms around this, what the court calls core interest in self-defense. But then Second Amendment doctrine has not adopted the same kind of tests and principles that self-defense doctrine does. And so in this case, you see the um, Clement and some of the justices, you know, inveighing against how horrible it would be to have to justify your need for self-defense. And like how appalling would it be if we had a constitutional right that had to be justified essentially in some kind of a way. But that is how self-defense law works. Like you don't just get to decide for yourself, you know, purely subjectively when you feel threatened to use lethal force against somebody else. So to me anyway, it would be weird if a constitutional right predicated on that right <laughs> were not itself subject to some of the same kind of principles. But Eric has made this argument at length and um, no, has forgotten more about it than I'll ever know. So I, I, should, I should actually tee this up for him instead. Well, Eric, on that or anything else um, uh, on the case, so no pressure. You don't have, you don't have to go to the core. Well, no, no. I, I I would like to say something about that. I also want to go back and say, Susan, I didn't know that you lived in Rensselaer County, but I lived in Sar- I'm from Saratoga and spent a lot of time in Troy, and I also um, spent 16 years in New York City. So these places and the way that they're described, it was interesting that they didn't really reflect the way they actually are. Troy is urban in some places, 
Um, and it's not like just backwoods areas. And so even if the court wanted to draw the line between New York City and Troy, there would be some inconsistencies in that approach. And then New York City to say that the subways are so, to imply that the subways are so dangerous, the subways are where there are a lot of police presence. They're probably safer than the rest of the city. And it's, it's important to remember that New York City is consistently rated one of the safest cities in the entire world. And New York State's homicide rates are below the national average. So um, New York policymakers believe that these restrictions on net keep New Yorkers safer. And it's an interesting, you know, obviously the, the, the focus of the argument tended to drill down into the individual person who's afraid to go into dangerous neighborhoods. Um, the policymakers have more tools to make aggregate decisions. And it's just going to be interesting to see what way that plays out. And, and not to interrupt you, Eric, but what's fascinating is they're not real individuals. So, so we have two individuals in this case, Koch and Nash, and we do not have any description of the, 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 the suffering or the violence that they have endured such that they are themselves really traumatized. So this is not an example of a person who has been raped, et cetera. So we, so we have three things. One is imaginary anecdotal individuals that I would argue are really more a reflection of the justices' own fears and imaginaries. Second, actual individuals who might come to the court and describe their true uh, feelings of, uh, of fear. And third, the aggregate data. And so what's, what's interesting to me about this case is that now I understand going to the two individual men who are bringing the case, but to create these imaginary people, that's fascinating. And for them to not reflect any of the sort of empirical realities. Yeah, Joseph, and then back I'll to Eric. One, one more character in the story who was not really present at the oral argument in Heller, but sort of shadowy figure at this oral argument is the government licensing official. Like the justices, especially Justice Kavanaugh, really had um, serious concerns. That, and, you know, they may be justified, but again, this is where you'd want some more data about how this sort of supposedly discretionary um, system works in practice. And so, you know, at Heller, th there was no, th the system wasn't like this. It wasn't a licensing system. It wasn't a permitting system. It was just a flat prohibition on handguns in the home for almost everybody. Here, there really is the sort of background, you know, atmosphere of the government official, you know, sitting at a, you know, paper, pencil pusher, um, you know, denying these people guns for a very visceral kind of a need. And that was, I wouldn't put that villain on quite the same level, maybe, as the home invader who sort of haunts the Heller scene. But, um, but certainly that that was a that was a theme at oral argument. Yeah, Eric, are you? I know you wanted to also get in. No, no, it, I, you know, it, one of the things if, if we loop back to the relationship between self defense and the Second Amendment, and this actually was on the heels of this conversation, the exchange between Alito, Justice Alito, and Barbara Underwood about what about that. Um, that dishwasher, that you know, imaginary person who has to go through a dangerous neighborhood, would they get a permit? And she responded, in essence, no. And Justice Alito's response was, quote, how is that consistent with the core right to self-defense, which is protected by the Second Amendment? And in that question, it's a really interesting question because for one thing, it presumes that the Second Amendment protects not just the right to keep and bear arms, but the right to self-defense. And the Supreme Court has never actually held that. And it also conflates the right to self-defense in the Second Amendment. 
people have a right to self-defense, even in places where they can't bring handguns. Um, and it's important, I think, to disaggregate the keeping and bearing of a weapon with the exercise of it, uh, with, the, with the use of that weapon. And it's something that the court and its questioning didn't seem to be um, doing. And if you are to disaggregate it, it also highlights another aspect of this case and the questioning that I find really interesting I'm writing about is that there's this, there's this assumption that the only thing that you can defend yourself with is a handgun. The Second Amendment protects the right to keep and bear arms, not firearms. There are lots of different tools that are used as weapons. Many of them are less lethal than firearms. But that reality doesn't really come out. It's unclear and it's not in the record whether or not people can bring tasers or pepper spray in these places where they can't bring handguns and whether or not that satisfies the right to keep and bear arms under the Second Amendment. These are all things that go unsaid and unexamined in this case. Um, The focus has been incredibly gun-centric, right to keep and bear a handgun anywhere that self-defense might take place. And if you're not allowed to carry that handgun, then the implication, at least in Justice Alito's questioning, was, well, then you therefore no, no longer have a right to self-defense, or this is an in- infringement on your right to self-defense. No, and I've read uh, one of your uh, articles on this, Eric, and, and frankly, I found it frightening by the end because the, uh, you know, the argument is that we're focused on this, but what if you could just bring knives any way you want, or small bombs? Uh, you know, what 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 is an arm? And you do a phenomenal job of of of, of backtracking on this to to give us that context, and also for me to to sort of set the the vast problems that could be caused uh, caused by it. Um, uh, Jake, please. Yeah. So one of the other things that was interesting about argument, and and more one of the things that didn't show up as much as I thought we were expecting to hear is something that you touched on a little bit earlier, and that's this question of, of race, and especially race and the permitting system that New York has. So um, by some measures of the amicus briefs in the case, there's about 84 of them, about a fourth of them overall touched on issues of how either the gun regulation system itself hurt uh, either minority groups based on race or gender or um, religious affiliation, or how the New York system was designed to protect the lives of the people that were most likely to be um, uh, to be victimized by gun violence. And so I thought going into the argument that race would play a more central role on both sides of the discussion about how this law was either um, hurting those racial minorities and those um, other minority groups or was designed to help those groups. We saw a little bit of this in, as you mentioned, um, Justice Alito in his discussion of the impetus for the law, uh, for Sullivan's law, which predated uh, by a couple of years this actual uh, proper cause requirement in New York's law. Um, and the, the pushback there um, from the state, I again think like Joseph, there, there, there is other evidence that that was not kind of an impetus for the law that could have been used. Uh, we have a, a good blog post by a historian on the Second Thoughts blog that goes through some of the evidence that was purported to be used to show that the law was motivated by anti-immigrant um, animus at the time and how that uh, doesn't hold up to some kind of uh, more searching scrutiny. 
And then there was a reference by Paul Clement at the very end of argument to one of the amicus briefs filed on behalf of the challengers by black attorneys of legal aid and other um, public defenders that argued that permitting schemes themselves were unconstitutional because they disproportionately affected um, communities of color. And so I expected that to get more play. And of course, you know, there were arguments on the other side, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, filed an amicus brief in support of the state, um, arguing, uh, you know, the opposite, that these laws were designed and helped to protect communities of color. And so that was uh, uh, something that was in the background of a lot of the questions, I think, um, from the way that you described the justices and what they imagined gun violence looks like and who is the victim of gun violence, but it wasn't in the foreground in the way I expected. No, it's a great point, Jake. Uh, it, it, looking at the amicus briefs, I would have imagined that would be part of the discussion as well. And I was really, I was really surprised, though I wasn't surprised to sort of hear the racialized um, ideas of crime sort of haunting. Uh, I didn't think that they would be as extreme. Okay, there's a couple of things that have been mentioned, and I just want to sort of clarify them for the for the non-Scotish junkies. Uh, one has to do with empirical data and sending the case down. And I, I just wanted to point out that so the the Kagan and Barbara Underwood both sort of made the case that, well, if you want more data on how many of these uh, concealed carry permits are turned down, maybe it's point five percent. So maybe there's no problem here. Then please send the court back, the case back down and then you can have a trial as to these facts. But the, the Supreme Court can't do that. So that's why that was out there. Uh, a second thing that um, got brought up had to do with um, history. And Justice Kagan sort of said, like, we got a lot of history in this case. Like, what should we do about it? And And this is a question kind of to all of you. You know, so the uh, Justice Scalia in Heller sort of said, like, we have to pay attention to what the original understanding of this is, and let me give you some. Uh, and, and it was, I, I think, even by people who support Justice Scalia's positions, not a very complete history. And uh, I, I thought it was interesting during oral arguments and in the briefs how they would sort of speak to the, like, the extensive history, like, which is just boggled my mind because I think that the history in, in Heller is 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 very problematic in that it's it's piecemeal and it, it skips around and it goes from different time periods. But this idea that we will discuss the text, but not all of it, only part of it, the history, but we're each going to have our own version of the history, would sort of lead many political scientists to ask the question of like, do any of these arguments matter whatsoever? Is there any situation in which Justice Thomas will hear about the history of the Texas gun law and say, wow, actually the tradition has been really different than I thought it was. I think I'm going to change my vote. Or are, are we sort of parsing this as if they are going to behave according to the arguments when that's really not how they're going to make this decision. Like what, I guess two, two things. One, what do we make of all of this uh, history and tradition originalism that seems to actually even be now what the, uh, the state is accepting that they must argue on? And also really would it do any good even if they had the most compelling history in the world? I think it's a really hard, I would say too, too hard two questions, I guess, Susan. Um, on, on the question of like whether it could matter, I mean, one interesting data point here is Justice Stevens' dissent in Heller, written 
with the belief, apparently, we learned later from his, his own explanation, with the belief that it could convince his colleagues, that it would convince his originalist colleagues that the history was strong enough to, to demonstrate that the federal courts had been right all along. And actually, yes, the Second Amendment really is about the organized militia and not about a private right to keep guns for, um, uh, for private purposes like self-defense in the home. Now, that proved to be wrong. He didn't get a majority, but he's in a better position probably than most of us to know who's receptive and who's not. And it seemed like he thought maybe Kennedy, maybe Thomas could be convinced by the history. So, so maybe, um, you know, on Justice Thomas, I would say, you know, one of the things I found surprising at oral argument was the degree to which he seemed receptive to this urban rural tailoring argument, um, which is one, I should say, in interest of full disclosure, that I discussed in an article called Firearm Localism probably eight or nine years ago. I did not expect when I wrote that article that Justice Thomas would be a person who would be receptive to it, uh, although it does contain a lot of historical analysis. Um, so I was I was grateful uh, and a little surprised to hear it there. I'm not saying that the article had any impact, but maybe the arguments which you know the, the briefs ably did, even if my, my article didn't, maybe did have some kind of impact. I mean, as far as like the relationship between Heller and history, I mean, I think this is just one of the most complicated and challenging issues for originalists and originalism generally is how do you deal with the intersection of precedent and history? And Heller certainly resolves some things as a matter of law, but whether it can be precedent with regard to historical fact is a much harder question. And I think actually Justice Barrett, uh, in some of her questioning, maybe to General Underwood, might have been trying to grapple with this question. But, you know, in the years since Heller, we've seen a sort of push and pull like between a, a sort of broadening and then narrowing of the historical record, uh, broadening in the sense that we have a lot more historical evidence today about the history of gun regulation and history of gun rights than we did when Heller was decided. Um, and some of that, you know, we, we maintain, for example, at the center, this on free online resource called, called the Repository of Historical Gun Laws that has probably 1,500 historical gun laws in it, not available when Heller was decided. Um, there's major developments in what's called corpus linguistics, which are sort of basically big data scraping of, you know, sources from the late 1700s or the mid 1800s to see how words like bare arms were used. And the use of corpus linguistics, even for people who are sympathetic to Heller, presents some real challenges for Justice Scalia's opinion. So that's the broadening part. We just know more about history than we did then. Yeah. The narrowing is, and you see this at the oral argument, and I think you were describing this, Susan, describing it well, is that the justices and Paul Clement, because it's his job, are trying to like hive off some of that history and sort of like, you know... Um, say only this history counts because Heller looked at it and said it was 60-40, but we're going with the 60. You can't look at the 40 anymore. And when you keep doing that over and over, basically what you're doing is distilling history into this like a one-way ratchet, really, the mixed metaphors here. This is going to get stronger and stronger in favor of gun rights and take more and more kind of regulation off the table. And that that intersection of sort of law and history leveraging one another, I think is really problematic. Agreed. Well, I think we have time for everybody to sort of give one last sort of, that's not our last chance at this, but one last looking back at the oral arguments. We'll have a lot of time until June to think about this. Um, Eric, do you want to start? Sure. I get just to, to, to piggyback on what Joseph was just saying, there is a lot of history with this particular issue um, more so even than other gun issues. There is a history of regulating the carrying of firearms that goes that back to the medieval ages. Um, and one of the things that's going to be really interesting when this opinion comes out is how they parse that history, whether they're emphasizing some um, history over other history. 
um, and what that might mean for future Second Amendment cases. Yeah, I'd say two things. One is that um, despite what we're talking about this disagreement, it seemed that all of the justices agreed that the Second Amendment was not going to be an absolute and unlimited right. It wasn't going to allow people to take their guns anywhere they wanted, that there were going to be uh, legitimate and valid state restrictions on where you can bring your guns, presumably also on what types of arms you can bear, but that'll be a later case. But there was overwhelming agreement that there were some places that you can't take your gun. Um, and relatedly, uh, it also seemed like the justices um, were not inclined to strike down a permitting system itself. They weren't inclined to say that a state has to be a permitless carry regime in which anybody who is not disqualified from carrying from, from having a gun can carry one outside the home. That they might go and require states to do a shall issue regime in which anybody who meets certain objective criteria is entitled to a license. But it didn't seem like they were going to say that licensings, uh, the licenses are, are unconstitutional altogether. And that's going to be weird because the shall issues like in Pennsylvania say being a drunkard can take it away. But being a drunkard doesn't take away your First Amendment rights or your Fourth Amendment rights. So it really seems to open a door to look at those regimes, which would mean far more than 80 million or 25 percent of the American population. But and if really I could just put say, some others into play, it, it's mind-boggling. Anyway, Joseph, I was going to say for in closing, Susan, because it, it, that to me is a perfect illustration of why this area of law and scholarship has so many open and new and distinct questions, which, like, hopefully anybody listening will feel free, feel um, feel the ability and the willingness to engage with. Because unlike the First Amendment, we just don't yet have the sort of same engagement and on the scholarly front. Um, uh, that we do with when it comes to questions like free speech and equal protection, and we desperately, desperately need it. Well, th thank you so much. Listen, it took a hundred years for the court to work on the First Amendment, and really, we've had since two thousand eight, uh, and I'm just uh, actually cribbing from you, Joseph, of of really that of making up a right that didn't exist, and it's only two thousand twenty one. So. We're actually in the sort of infancy of figuring this out in a, in a world that is completely different from the 18th century or the middle 19th century in which we have these two great constitutional moments. Um, Eric Rubin, Jacob Charles, Joseph Bloker, thank you so much for taking the time. We are going to have links to all of the resources that have been mentioned, including the Duke Firearms Database, which I use all the time and is a wonderful free resource, as well as uh, some of your excellent legal scholarship and public-facing scholarship. Um, thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you, thank Susan. Thank you, Susan. Thank you.